University of Georgia Griffin campus invites you to join us for news and information about the many and varied programs and activities at the UGA Griffin campus. Information about gardening, the agriculture programs, and your UGA degree at the University of Georgia Griffin campus. Your UGA degree is closer than you think. This program is made possible by Frank and Carolyn Harris of Round Oak Resources Tree Farm and Murray and Company Realtors. Listen each Thursday at 9 o'clock a.m. for the UGA Griffin Campus News. This program is produced by WKU AM 1450 and 102.3 FM and The Rock 88.9 FM and streamed live on our website, wkuradio.com. Join us now with our guests from the UGA Griffin Campus. And we welcome you into this week's installment of the University of Georgia Griffin Campus News. Our guest today will be Clint Waltz. He is a professor and turf graft extension specialist on the UGA Griffin Campus. And if you didn't hear us before the break or you're just now joining us on 88.9 FM The Rock, Dr. Waltz is a world-renowned expert in the field. If you're a fan of sports, well, then you've seen his turf. He has done the turf for World Cups, for Super Bowls, for the annual Masters, which I'm going to ask him about. We're going to bring that up a little bit later in the program. But Dr. Waltz, having the guts that he does, suggested that we try something a little bit different here this morning on the UGA Griffin Campus News, and that is to take phone calls from people. If Dr. Waltz can help with all of the uh, sporting events, I mean, these are the, the leading sports events in all the world. If he can handle the turf grass management for that, I think he can probably help you with your front yard. So the number to call this morning, if you wish to participate in the program, have your questions answered, 770-227-5507. I'm a little bit of a novice on our new hybrid system, but we'll do our very best. We will get you on the air and let you ask your questions to Dr. Walls. But Clint, thank you for joining us this morning uh, just for the sake of our listeners who have not heard you on the program before if you kind of fill people in on who dr clint waltz is sure thank you i appreciate that and, and i guess i should st- I, f- I feel compelled to step back and say you know, let's let's hold on a minute you, i think you overbuilt me a little bit <laughs> nah, I, look I, 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 I they I, didn't send a, a packet this morning you right. did but, uh, but um, i know everything that i said to be true well it I've, I've helped in many big sporting events and that kind of thing. I'm familiar with some of the professionals and of them, um, and, and I would say it's a personal goal at some point to actually be involved with something like a Super Bowl or a World Series. So I hadn't made those yet on the turf side, but certainly our, our big golfing events, I have had numerous um, opportunities for some of those and um, uh, on them. But uh, it's it's a great field. I enjoy what I do. I enjoy uh, the, the, the professional group of people that I work with. And uh, not only as, as practitioners out there, our sports field folks, our golf course superintendents, our commercial lawn care folks, but also my colleagues at the University of Georgia. We've got a great turf team at UGA and a fantastic cor- uh, turf team at the uh, Griffin campus. Um, I've been here at UGA for, I'm in my 19th year now. Um, my wife and, and family and I moved here back in 2001 to, to take this position at the uh, University of Georgia's uh, extension, extension turf specialist. And uh, so I have statewide responsibilities in all areas of turf. So um, I, I'm the one that helps county agents. I'm the one that helps the practitioners and in, in the industry out there. And I probably work with them more than any other group. Um, but I also work with homeowners and master gardeners and, and you name it. And uh, that's, uh, that's golf courses. That, when I say industry groups and statewide, uh, that's, that's golf courses anywhere from your low-end municipal county-run facility all the way up to, to the high-end uh, Augusta courses. National. Well, uh, 
sometimes I try not to brag, <laughs> but I have worked with them and do work with them uh, with the Masters and, and what have you, as well as you know, East Lake and uh, down at RSM, the RSM down at uh, Sea Island and, and, and others. So um, I, I make no distinction um, on whether, you know, if you're a golf course and you need some assistance and I can be of assistance, we certainly wind up trying to put a research base in, um, and uh, um education, scientific method, back to, to your problems. But sports fields, commercial lawn care, and then the one that many folks tend to not think about is the sod production, which is an entirely different kind of cropping system when it comes to turf. So in turf, we deal with many grasses and two different basin cropping systems. So one's a, a production system in sod, and the other one's a maintenance system that we wind up seeing on sports fields, golf courses, and home lawns. Well, Word, tell people about your educational background. How did you get into the turf grass field? Sure. Um, you know, it, it, I'll be, <laughs> it's really simple. Um, when I was in high school, I, I liked making a little bit of money and, uh, I had a, had a lawnmower and a blower and, um, I, I mowed yards. I enjoyed being outside. Um, uh, I grew up, well, middle school and high school. I was in Gainesville, Florida. Um, my dad was on faculty at University of Florida and, um, just enjoyed being outside and working and and making money and and uh and started there uh went to clemson for an undergraduate bs degree uh got out of there did a couple of internships at uh, a little golf course in augusta that uh host a big event and um graduated with a bs in 92 uh, from clemson and uh worked for about two years uh back at that same little small golf course there in augusta <laughs> and uh decided there that uh I really enjoyed the research side and wanted to be a resource to the industry uh, more than anything else. That's, that, was, that was what I enjoyed doing. And um, so I went back and earned a master's degree with a former weed scientist there at Clemson. And uh, while I was there, um, really a renowned um, professor, turf professor, moved from Florida back to Clemson. So, uh, and, and my wife had a great job, could help put me through grad school. And uh, so we, we did that, and she supported me through grad school. And um, and went in debt and earned a Ph.D. again at Clemson. So I refer to myself as a three-time offender uh, <laughs> on on it, and uh, and then straight from Clemson to to here. So this was my first position and only position from graduate school. So that's that's how I got here. Now, how many people comprise the turf grass team on the University of Georgia Griffin campus? We have seven faculty um, on the Griffin campus and seven faculty programs. Uh, so I'm just kind of, we have a new turf building. It's still new to us because we've only been at about two and a half years. So I'll start kind of on the end of the hall and, and work down the hall. And uh, so we have me as the agronomist. So as uh, is, is me and my program. And then we have Dr. Shamat Joseph, uh, who is our turf grass entomologist. Um, and then next to him is uh, our new faculty hire, Dr. Borka Bahari. Uh, she is a, a pathologist, um, research pathologist. Uh, next to her is Dr. Alfredo Martinez, uh, extension pathologist, turfgrass pathologist. And great interview. Yes, Alfredo's full of life and, and energy for sure. Um, and then next to Alfredo is Dr. Paul Raymer. Uh, he's our turfgrass breeder um, and been in the Griffin area since the mid-80s. So Paul's a, a common name and known well. Um, next to Paul is uh, Dr. Patrick McCullough, our, our turfgrass weed scientist. And uh Last, but certainly not least, is uh, Dr. David Jesperson, who is our turfgrass physiologist. So those are the seven uh, faculty programs here on the Griffin campus that are in the, the new building that uh, we opened up, uh, gosh, it was at, uh, September, October of 17, 18. Um, 
the entire faculty at UGA Griffin is renowned and it, for its ability to create some very interesting publications and other departments. Does your department do that as well? Through, Absolutely. Through we the do. extension service. Absolutely. That's that's one of our, our, our callings is to get information out there and have it out there for, for county agents as well as homeowners. Uh, one of the things that's part of my, my program, and whenever I got here back in 01, Internet had been around. It wasn't anything new, but uh, starting to program for the Internet and how to wind up getting information and information delivery and transfer through electronic means was, was an evolving um, uh, thing. So I overtook our, our website at the time, and it was georgiaturf.com. Uh, and spell out Georgia, but georgiaturf.com is our, our UGA Turfgrass website. And um, so I took that over, and we try to turn that into a, a one-stop shop. So whether you're a student looking for getting into to the turf industry or you're interested in what the size is or you're interested in how to maintain your centipede grass lawn, um, we, we try to have all of that right there on Georgia Turf. We use that as a portal to everything that, that we do in turf. So uh, not only do we do instill some of the old, we will say traditional or, or hard-paged um, publications and most of those are electronic now that you can download and print yourself uh, but we also try to have stuff up online and keep things as current as possible and integrate new research uh, into those publications well most people fall in one or two categories in your position either you're an in the field guy or you're a, I like doing the publications in the <laughs> where do you fall on the spectrum uh it definitely more the former than the latter uh, I like being in the field I like interacting with uh with the people um, yeah, I was on the phone this morning with a sod producer in a low part of the state that's having problems with centipede grass. So I, I like solving problems, and that's why one of the reasons I went back to grad school is that I liked solving problems, and I liked doing it with a, with a scientific basis and putting research and information behind it, not just um, you know, conjecture and, and, and uh, in, innuendo, I suppose, like you get on some sites. So um, I, I like being out in the field. But make no mistake about it, um, you, you do still have to get information out there, and you have to get it published, and, um, and that's just kind of the nature of the game in the world that I live in. Well, now, how, is important, how important is it for our listeners who might have a turf grass question and be a little bit more Internet proficient than somebody like, say, I am? How important is it for them to hit your publications as opposed to something like Wisconsin or a California-based? I mean, how different are the grasses in different regions of the country, and is that why it's important to try to visit UGA's publications? Absolutely. No, it's a situation where, you know, you may be growing Bermuda grass in a lawn in California, and we're going to grow Bermuda grass in a lawn, and same Bermuda grass cultivar, cultivated variety, uh, in Griffin, but the environmental conditions, the soil conditions, those kinds of things may very much influence how that grass grows, how you're going to fertilize it, how you would water it. Uh, you get Southern California, and you know, they may be looking at 12, 18 inches of rain a year. So, and, and as a result, they're going to have some salt issues and those kinds of things. Gosh knows, we can get 12 inches of rain in, in, in a month <laughs> if you go back and look at what we had in February and March of this year uh, on things. So, our, our soils will behave different, how the grasses will behave, how you would manage them, how you're going to fertilize them. Weed species uh, across regions are going to be different. Disease species across regions are going to be different. So finding that information that's, that's local to you. And then uh, the other, I would say, is looking at your land grant because, again, that's going to be research-based. Um, and, and I'm not going to discredit any of uh, the, the commercial stuff that's out there. Uh, many of them have some very good agronomists that I do work with, with, with some of the big um, um, companies. But you also have some stuff out there that's uh, off base as well that uh, is, is almost kind of somewhat but not really right. 
um, and and um, it, it can't be always adapted or applied. And and there's been times where I've had to walk back. So, you know, Clint, here here's some things I saw on the internet and said, well, I understand, and and they're they're almost correct, but you take and put it in the context of our soils, our climate, and that's really not what you need to do. How has technology changed your job? I mean, you talked about how the internet kind of developed, but because you help so many people from different avenues and different areas of the state, you know, they can now take a picture, which used to take you a week to transmit. Now you can get it in a matter of seconds. How has technology changed what it is you do? Uh, Tremendously. And um, uh, whenever I came in in 01, UGA had a system, the and, and forgive me for the acronym, but I know it's DDDI, Digital Distance Diagnostics, and I forget the I uh, on a thing. And and that was where there was a grant that was given, and they bought microscopes to go in every county office and for every county agent such that they could take pictures. started off as diseases, but then it turned into being do weed ID and insect ID and, and these kind of things. And the, and the DDDI system evolved and grew and the thought there was is that we'd take that we wind up putting into the system agents can uh, Im- upload this county specialist can or excuse me um commodity specialists can then pull those down whether it's corn or turf or cotton or, or what have you and and we can kind of archive that and, and help them well with email it got a whole lot easier with that sometimes and entering it into the system and now you know where, where can you go and someone not be in contact with you? Because you got your, your phones in your pocket uh, and, and your emails in your pocket um, or, or strapped to your belt on the side. So county agents and, and homeowners and practitioners, they, they've always got access to me. Um, I, I never, it's probably wrong, but any anytime I'm on vacation or away or anything, I, I never put the notification on because it's... It's nonstop. It's nonstop. I it it happens all the time. So, and... Um, the resolution of these cameras and phones and that kind of thing have gotten so good that I've I've been real impressed to how more how accurate I can be now than I was five or ten years ago. Even when you still had some of the technology, but just the the resolution that you can get on these cameras. Now I have had to remind some some um, some county agents that uh, yeah it's it's easier to hit low resolution, but when you do, I can't zoom in and I can't help you out. So you know it, it I, I prefer the higher resolution images, but uh, what you get those gosh knows you can get into these and and, uh, and and do some diagnostics fairly quick and get people some answers in a in a much more rapid period of time. Well, University of Georgia, of course, is a academic institution, but it will never be able to escape its research roots. I mean, it started as the Georgia Experiment Station, and it'll never escape the research roots. What are some of the research projects that are currently going on in the turfgrass department? Well, right now, that's kind of a hard question to ask because uh, with COVID-19 and the university under a, um, was it partial or, or closure we're not right. we're not shut down it's a partial closure so i forget what the exact terminology is on the thing but uh any active and ongoing research has to have has to be approved by the vice president of, of research at uga uh there's certain guidelines that that he will wind up uh, uh approving that under uh certainly trying to maintain social distancing and i think so this year it's it's a little concerning because um we don't have as much active research going on. There's not as many people on town. This should be the time where we're ramping up and getting things going and bringing, uh, increasing our staffs and that kind of thing. And, and COVID-19 has certainly changed an awful lot of that. Um, we have been able to ask for some of those exemptions on some things. So, for example, some of my trials and work, and, and I'm very heavily involved in the cultivar evaluation of a number of species. So I've been able to continue to collect data on those. We've been able to continue to maintain our product, uh, our plots on those such that they don't get contaminated and we wind up losing them um, uh, on things or too weedy to the point where we can't 
backup control and see how the grass itself is doing and not not the weediness of the project um, so we've got some things there going on um, we're still looking at water use efficiency of grasses um, pest management is, is still there you know weeds continue to be a problem diseases continue to be a problem insects continue to be a problem uh, out there on those um, Another project that I've got that's going on that I'm I'm really excited about because it's kind of fun and I think kind of cutting edge and and um, I, I like to think I do a decent job of looking down the down the road what are the emerging trends over the next three to five years in the turf industry but uh, um, I've got a project looking at the impact of um, uh, um, autonomous mowers on, on turf because um, the mowing there is very different than what we've done in the past um, so that one's that's kind of an interesting exciting trial that I've got. Um, um, uh, on it. So, well, again, this is a call-in program this morning. Our guest, Dr. Clint Waltz, professor and turfgrass extension specialist. The number to call in with your questions is seven seven zero two two seven five five zero seven. But, uh, Dr. Waltz, why during the COVID nineteen crisis, when we were under somewhat lockdown conditions, <laughs> for lack of a better term, lawn maintenance businesses, turf management, were considered essential services why i mean just and I'm, and I'm asking more for an opinion than for solid fact but why do you think that that was considered essential well it was considered essential because of the services that they've kind of come back and provide in the way of some sanitation and that type of thing and most of those businesses are ones that uh, that you know it, it's easy to maintain those social distancing and and those kinds of things with and they're outside uh, on things so the the likelihood of of transmitting and being a vector and that type of thing for the virus is certainly less than but uh, as, as well as being able to maintain some of the sanitation and, and things moving forward in the landscapes and, and what have you so um, and then on the golf side you know it's it's exercise um, I, I, I'm not sure who but I think someone smartly early on realized that if, if we kept folks inside hey, this this thing's going to end in some bad episodes of The Shining so um, you, you got to get some folks outside, and, and you got to get them so they're not always just seeing the same four walls. And uh, so letting the landscape companies continue to, to maintain lawns and landscapes and, and facilities around, because as they go into disrepair, you're going to spend more money, time, and effort trying to recover back from something other that, that you have very little impact or, or likelihood of causing some problems. So, again, I think those were some very fortunate moves. And um, several national organizations, the National Landscape National Association of Landscape Professionals and the Golf Course Superintendents Association were very active in keeping those groups as um, as, as essential nationwide uh, for for multiple reasons. What is the economic impact of turf grass on the state of Georgia? I mean, not just nationally, but just here in the state. Yeah, um, it's it's really huge, and most folks don't realize or appreciate. I didn't. Yeah, uh, I don't. And we've got numbers, and it's it's. We need to redo this survey. Uh, the numbers are about ten to twelve years old now, uh, but ten to twelve years ago, we were showing that that turf in the state of Georgia is about a seven point eight billion dollar a year economic driver with eighty seven thousand jobs. Um, you know that has gone up. So as Georgia has continued to increase in population, as Georgia has continued to increase its um, infrastructure, um, I, I feel comfortable in saying we're over an $8 billion a year economic impact in the state of Georgia. And I have no clue as to wind up saying, you know, are we really pushing over 100,000 jobs in the in the turf and, uh, and landscape industry? I would, I would have to think it would yeah. be with, you know, over a 10-year uh, period. But you know, I'm, I'm kind of working there off of a good educated guess 
um, uh, in that respect. But um, so you, you have that golf itself is, is a huge economic driver, and, and that's a more recent study. They had one that came out about two years ago um, just looking at golf in the state of Georgia. Um, is, is about a $3 billion, $3 billion a year economic impact in the state of Georgia, just golf alone. And uh, I think that's quite impressive considering you've got about 100 miles of coast. So we don't have a Florida kind of coast. We don't have a Hilton Head or Myrtle Beach kind of type of situation in the state of Georgia. And you're still looking at a $3 billion a year industry just in golf alone. So... Um, it's it's huge, and if you take that in context of many of our other agronom- yeah agronomic crops, so whether it's cotton or peanuts or, or what have you, uh, chickens, we're 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 huge, and and the difference between us and many of those others is the farm gate. The others are measured. You got a commodity, you raise it, you grow it, you harvest it, you sell it. So that's a farm gate. With us and turf, you it's it's a maintenance thing. So it's it's. It's the folks with the Atlanta Braves maintaining those fields. It's it's the Augusta National and the East Lakes and the the Sea Islands maintaining those golf courses that are employing people 365 days a year because we do have a pretty much season long growing season here. Um, so it's it's a massive um, economic driver in the state. Turf is now. How will that be impacted by COVID nineteen? I mean, obviously, you know, not as many people have played golf, but in what other areas did the, did the pandemic affect? The turf grass industry here in the state. Well, that's that's been interesting. Uh, it's I'm sure it's had somewhat of an adverse effect, um, um, and I've certainly have heard some landscape companies that have kind of pulled back and that kind of thing. But I've also aware of some that have have picked up business, um, and just looking at my phone calls and emails and that kind of thing over the last 60, 75 days since we've kind of been in this, um, you've got more people looking out the window of that home office that generally don't see the outside. And uh, they've been much more engaged in their own home landscape. And as a result, uh, our sod producers, I've had about four in the last two weeks tell me they want to stop shy of saying record sales through the spring, but they've been busy. They've been harvesting grass, and grass has been been going. So projects are continuing on. A lot of them are going into areas where people are just, again, looking outside that, that home office and say, I've got time to do something, and they're hiring a landscaper or they're hiring, you know, commercial landscaper to to redo their landscape, put grass in. That winds up trickling down to the sod producer, so on and so forth. So they, they're—I won't say they're doing well, but um, they've they've got their own challenges. But at the same time, I think many of them have, have they're not it, it, unfortunate. Fortunately, I guess for the landscape industry, it's not like the food service industry where you've got a lot of people that are out of business. They they've been able to maintain reasonably well. The sod industry has been able to maintain reasonably well. Um, uh, on it. Golf um, is one that, um, talking with a few superintendents, these guys are, the volume on it hasn't been as bad off as, as they thought. Um, so it's hard to say exactly the Larry, negative. I got this, Larry. I got it. And, uh, on it. No, I got it, Larry. Yeah, I got it. Yes. So. I, Clint, we've got our first call. Go ahead, caller. You're on the air with Dr. Hello, Clint Walsh. Yes, Mr. Clint. Yes, I have a question, couple of questions about my yard. I have a lot of weeds in my grass, and uh, my grass is, you know, needs some fertilizing and so forth, a few things, and what to treat for that and insects. And insects, okay. 
Uh, what kind of grass do you have? Do you know? Uh, no, sir. I don't know if it's Bermuda or what it is. I know rye. I don't know what's what, really, to be honest with you. Okay. Well, generally, that's going to be the first step we want to do is we want to know what grass we have because um, each grass species that we have has a little bit different requirements. Yeah. So if you have something like Bermuda grass, unfortunately Bermuda grass is a fairly resilient species and it's it's pretty hard to, to kill Bermuda grass and you can do the right things with it in a hurry and get it to respond as well. So we needed to find out what grass you have first and, okay. and what I would recommend you do is maybe get a sample to your local or to our county extension office here okay. in, in Spalding County and let's get that let's yeah. get that identified. Okay. And, and once we do that, then we can do a little bit better job of, of getting you the right recommendations okay. on how to kill the weeds. Oh. But but I will say this is many of our weeds that we're having right now are in our in our in our lawns. Um, it's it's a hodgepodge. We have some winter annual weeds that are still hanging around as cool as we've been here lately. Um, they haven't been pushed over the edge. They've gotten a few new leases on life. Um, as, as temperatures have fluctuated and especially cooled down at night like we've had the last, say, 7 to 10 days. Yeah. So we got a lot of winter, winter weeds still hanging around, but we've also been warm enough that our summer weeds are, are coming on pretty good too. Okay. So we've got a little bit of both. Yeah. And uh, my recommendation for, for weeds right now would probably be get your mowing height down. So if you can mow down about an inch, inch and a half, on, if you've got Bermuda grass, for example, yeah. that's going to put some pressure on those winter weeds such that when it does okay. warm up, um, they, they'll, they'll kind of go ahead and die off. Um, and then um, as far as it goes with insects, uh, that's another one of those things that we need to make sure we identify the, the insect because last thing we want to do is put an insecticide down for, a, for an insect problem yeah. and, and kill off some beneficial insects. So we have okay. many insects in our, in our environment out there that actually – are are they they feed on the the problematic insects so you don't want to kill off the bad guy or the good guys thinking yeah. you're going after the bad guys so uh if you see some insects it'd be nice if you could kind of trap them or hold them put them in a little bottle or something yeah. other and take those to your county agent as well so okay. use use your county county extension office uh to, to your advantage you okay you pay the taxes so you you deserve yeah. the services yes sir <laughs> And uh, so I just get a little sample of my grass and a little soil to go with it. Uh. Yeah, uh, generally okay. you need something other, maybe about two to three inches in diameter or okay. square. Okay. And uh, I like to see it be about two inches or so deep. Okay. That way, if they need to look at the root system or something like that, if we're having a problem, um, it's nice to look at the root system. Is there something chewing on it or the roots degrading or, you know, possible disease, something along those lines. Yeah. So it's nice to have about a, a two or three inch square and about two inch deep sample. Okay. All right. Well, we very much well, we appreciate the phone call very much. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Bye bye. Again, the number to call is seven seven zero two two seven five five zero seven. We'll be glad to put you on the air with Dr. Clint Waltz. Well, where we left off, Dr. Waltz, uh, something that I find interesting that I had never heard of until the last time you were here, and I'm interested to know a little bit more about it: sod production. Mm-hmm. Uh, you sent me a note, uh, some production notes. It says roughly twenty-seven thousand acres. That's statewide. Mm-hmm. In what areas is this done? Is this all-encompassing in the state, or is this more centralized? Um, no, actually, that's statewide. Uh, we have sod farms that go you know, all the way from Valdosta up to, um, oh, shoot, um, Calhoun uh, on it. Now, the majority of our sod producers are, are kind of in the Fort Valley, Perry. That's, that's where majority of the acres are um, on it. And, and if you look at it from a transportation standpoint, 
it makes sense. You hit I-75, and, and, and from I-75, you can get to Atlanta, you can get to Savannah, you can get to Augusta, you can wind up, you know. So, you know, that's that's a matter of a distribution type of thing. Soil sipes, uh, that part of the state, help and aid with uh, with uh, sod production as well, um, having other resources for, for growth. So of that 27,000 acres, um, majority of it's probably right there in central Georgia, um, and the bubble needs to be a little bit bigger than just Perry and Fort Valley, but um, but that's certainly a large part of it right in there. Now, what types of sod are being produced? Um, in the state of Georgia, we have Bermuda grass, and there's, uh, gosh, there's probably about five or six different cultivars of Bermuda grass that's uh, grown for commercial availability. Uh, zoysia grass, and we have, last counted, I was aware of 14, and I know a 15, a 15th that's coming. Uh, they won't have enough in production this year, but there's 14 different cultivars or cultivated varieties of zoysia grass that are available for the um, state of Georgia. Uh, there are two centipede grass cultivars. There's common and tiff blair. Um, there's a little bit of St. Augustine grass. And the cool season species that we have producers producing are, is tall fescue. So those are the ones that we have in production uh, statewide. Um, Dr. Ross, we have another caller on the Great. line, so she's got a question that she would like to get in about her grass. Go ahead, ma'am. You're on the air with Dr. Clint Waltz. Hey, how you doing? I'm well. Uh, hey, I have a little issue. I have a, a mixture of centipede and I guess in zoysia, and we have a lot of weeds this year, I have noticed, and I have put something twice out already and have had a, a problem with that. Um, not getting rid of them, especially, I guess you call it chickweed. Mm-hmm. Um and what can I do about that? Do I need to? I've been cutting my grass on three, but it seems like it just they're terrible. So I okay. would like to see what I can do different. Well, um, I don't know what your three is, um, and, and that can be highly variable from one mower to another um, uh, on it. But I, I've got good news for you. Chickweed, okay. chickweed is a winter annual broadleaf weed. Mm-hmm. So it comes up in the wintertime. It likes cool temperatures. And uh, so when it starts to get hot, it's finishing its life cycle, which means it's flowering and starting to put out new seed and that'll be in the soil for next fall, um, germinate late fall, early winter mm-hmm. uh, on it. Uh, so your chickweed, if you've got chickweed in your centipede zoysia grass lawn, um, mowing that down low and when we finally get some, some hot temperatures, and, and when I say hot or warm temperatures, I'm talking 80, 85 degrees right. and higher, that chickweed's going to die out. It's going to get a little leggy. It's going to turn yellow, and uh, it's going to die out. So if you're at three, uh, I'd add some mowing pressure to it, and the two things I think you might want to do with your centipede zoysia um, mixed stand lawn okay. would maybe drop down to a two All right. and uh, mow at least for the next, say, week and a half, two weeks, mm-hmm. mow a little more regular. So if you mow on a Monday and you come back again the following Monday, try Monday, Friday kind of thing, and then you know maybe Tuesday, Saturday the following week or something like that. Um, and I'm trying to, by, by increasing your mowing frequency, I'm trying to improve the subcanopy density and color in your grass such that it doesn't go off color and look too terribly bad when you drop that mowing height from three to two. Right. And and the other is is you may want to blow off, rake off, or um, bag those clippings when you drop that mowing height from three to two because you don't want to leave all that biomass sitting up there on top yeah. of the canopy. Yes, I have a, a bagger, and I have a snapper, so okay. if that makes any difference. I have a little one of those back-end engine snappers. Yes, ma'am. Or whatever you call them. <laughs> but that's what we have. Um, but I just, 
I guess I hate the weeds. And um, we had, when we moved there, we had all zoysia, but both neighbors had centipede on each side. So, of course, it creeps over. Right. Um, I do know a lot about grass. And usually I told my husband, he said, cut it on three. And I said, usually when the chickweed's there, I cut it low at first, especially when the weather's still cool so that I can get rid of some of that. But he, he told me to do it three. But um, Okay. Well, here's yeah. here's going forward on things. Like I said, your chickweed's going to die um, mm-hmm. here in the next couple of three weeks. Uh, okay. So so I feel comfortable on that. Um, but what you may want to do is next uh, end of August, 1st of September, come out with a pre-emergence herbicide. Mm-hmm. Now, I will tell you that the pre-emergence herbicide, and I say um, late August, early September, somewhere between, let's just say, August 21st and September 15th. Right. Um, most of those herbicides don't work real well on broadleaf weeds, but they work some. Yeah. So instead of having a, a big infestation of check, ne- chickweed next year, you'll have a moderate uh, infestation of chickweed next year. Well, I did but, put something out in the fall. So okay. I'm in, uh, uh, well, don't don't not do that again. But okay. then the other thing I would wind up saying is whenever you get into something other like, um, oh, I don't know, late December, early January, mm-hmm. uh, consider then coming in with a pre uh, with a post emergence herbicide, and you can find some of these on granulars that has. And you're looking for something that contains 2,4-D in it. So look on the bag. It has to have the ingredients. But look on the bag and see, see if it has 2,4-D, 2,4-D on it. Okay. And apply that somewhere in, um, as I said, um, and you, it may go out as a hose-in sprayer type of thing. It may go out as a granular that you'd put in a spreader and spread out. Um, there's right. several different formulations for that. But consider that somewhere in a, in a late December, early January. And my objective there is trying to get that checkweed. You may have some stuff come up, but... It's going to be easier to control that then when it's a small plant than whenever it gets bigger later on. So uh, putting some herbicide pressure on it and, and possibly killing it off at that point, and maybe you'll have a cleaner lawn next, um, I guess, April, May <laughs> next okay, year. Okay, yes. <laughs> well, I hope so. <laughs> so. Ma'am, we very much appreciate your phone call. I hope Dr. Waltz has been able to help. Yes, thank you, and you have a good day. You too, ma'am. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. All right, the number to call if you wish to speak to Dr. Clint Waltz here on WKEU. Have your turf grass and lawn maintenance questions answered, 770-227-5507. To give us a call, the lines are clear. You mentioned something during the call there, Dr. Waltz, about the weather volatility that we've had this year. Mm -hmm. We had an inordinate amount of rain the first three months. And really, I mean, we did a thing the other day where... It could actually not rain in between now and August, and we'd be on pace. How does that affect turf grass? Well, it's, it depends on the species again. Um, Bermuda grasses, oysia grasses, uh, probably not as much with the rain that we've had the time this year because when all that came down, those grasses were, were dormant um, uh, on it. So is, believe it or not, our, our soils drain reasonably well. So even those folks say, oh, I don't have good soil because it's red, that red Georgia clay soil. Well, the fact that it's red tells you it actually drains. Um, our soils have iron in them, so uh, when you add a little oxygen to it, the, the iron will rust, and that's what you're seeing in those soils. So if, if we didn't have some oxygen in there and they drain, then they wouldn't be red clay soils. On those. So our soils drain, and as a result, they're not holding a tremendous amount of water. And biologically, that time of year, this time of year, our, um, um, our grasses weren't growing, so they weren't biologically active. Now, the downside is water is a tremendous buffer of heat. So when those soils get wet, it takes longer for them to warm up. And our warm season grasses, so things like Bermuda grass, centipede grass, St. Augustine grass, and zoysia grass, 
they're going to initiate roots when soil temperatures are consistently over 65 degrees at the four inch depth. So if those soils are wet and it's taking longer for them to to warm up, they're going to be slower to green up and transition the spring. And that's exactly what we've seen in a number of areas. And particularly three weeks ago, I was feeling a number of phone calls and, and emails with Bermuda grass and zoysia grass just lagging behind. And uh, so as these temperatures are fluctuated, we've warmed up and then we've cooled down. We've warmed up a little bit and we've cooled down again. And um, it, our soil temperatures just really haven't come up and stayed up. And um, it, that's what's probably affecting many things right now. When it comes to turf grass, you know, there, there, there's a, a beautiful website that University of Georgia has that will indicate the 2-inch, 4-inch, and 8-inch mm-hmm. soil temperatures. Yes. What uh, What is... The ideal for grass, you mentioned four, but what is the significance of the temperature and why isn't two inches enough? I mean, why does four <laughs> seem to be the magic number? Well, there's two reasons four is the magic number for turf. One is that's the upper part of where the roots are uh, on it. Um, so we're, we're getting the temperatures there. And, and by the way, that website is Georgia. Uh, go to georgiaweather.net. And it's a website that's maintained by the University of Georgia. There's 80, 90-some-odd weather stations around the state. Find the one closest to you. And here in Griffin, we've got two. There's one at the Dempsey Farm, and there's one on the UGA Griffin campus. So you can find one fairly local and get local information for you. But uh, for turf, that that 4-inch soil temperature, that's where our root system is. But most importantly is is 4 inches is a nice little spot to kind of buffer um, the uh, cyclical temperatures that we see. So if we get warm in April, first part of April, uh, if you're just measuring at the two-inch depth, you'll see two-inch soil temperatures come up rather rapidly with a couple of few warm days. Um, and then all of a sudden it turns off cool. So what we'd like to do in, in, in the world of COVID-19 is is we want to flatten the curve a little bit, right? Right. Same thing with a four-inch soil temperature. And we've been trying the same thing. So we don't want the highs and we don't want the lows. We kind of want to see the a nice even pace and an even upward trend when it comes to soil temperatures in the spring, um, approaching that 65 degrees and beyond. And uh, so 65 degrees is kind of the magic number for warm season grasses for, for a couple of reasons. One, that's when our warm season grasses will initiate new roots and initiate new growth. And the other is, is that since that's the temperature, too, that really gets many of our soil microorganisms active as well. So being able to break down thatch and, or break down organic matter and turn that into nitrogen or other nutrients that our plants can uptake and that kind of thing. So soil temperatures at 65 degrees and the 4 inches is just a really good place to, to consistently look at temp- uh, temperatures such that it's, it's not fluctuating dramatically and it's having the best biological activity. Well, you mentioned this, and I, you know, I did not really consider this, but there are a lot more people home. Uh, the distance work, distance education, sure. things like that. They're seeing their yards a lot more than they typically do, so they're paying more attention. Let's say somebody is, is looked out the window and say, okay, I, I've had enough of the bald spots. This mm-hmm. isn't growing the way I want it to. I'm going to go with new sod. When is the ideal time, and what would be your top three breeds for the, <laughs> for this area? I mean, that, that would sure. take hold and, and, and look nice pretty much year-round if as much as possible. Right. Um, I, I think I understand what you're asking, and, and I'll tell you that the Ph.D. behind my name gives me an awful lot of opportunity to put wiggle worms and wiggle words in things and, and make sure I'm noncommittal on things. Uh, but uh, <laughs> um, as, as far as it goes with the optimal time, actually now is a good one um, on it. So as these soil temperatures are rising, um, I'm a big fan of sodding and putting grass out when it's most agron- agronomically advantageous. 
So, and, and that's as those soil temperatures are coming up or once they've gotten up and when you put new sod or new seed in the ground, that it can go ahead and establish a root system. The root system is what's important. It'll support all the top growth. If we don't have a good root system, we're not going to get a good top growth, um, and which is what everybody sees and wants, right, uh, on it. So right now is a good time, and uh, now's the time to be looking and thinking, all right, if I've got to do this, what do we need to do? And um, do we need to spray this? You know, what, what still is alive are the weeds. Do we need to spray and kill those off? Do we need to wind up tilling things in? Do we need to add any soil amendments and getting the soil test done right now? So here we are, middle of May is, is not a bad time to be doing some of that with the intent of uh, trying to sod you know, or, or seed anytime here in the next uh, month to 45 days uh, on things. So um, it's it, this is an excellent time. Now, you asked me about my favorite breeds. I mean, what grass what species really, or, yeah, or species, cultivars? What or works here? Um, all of our grass is actually working griffin. Um, so even even tall fescue, which is a cool season species, will look working griffin. It's going to be best adapted to more protected sites or shady areas. Um, if you've got a front lawn that's eight hours or better of, of uninterrupted sun in June, July, and August, and tall fescue is probably not the, the cultivar for you. But if you've got a very heavily shaded lot, um, like, you, you know, you might would have down college or, you know, uh, maple or something along those lines, then you have some opportunities in there with some tall fescue um, in, in some of those situations. But uh, the rest of our warm season grasses, and we've got them all over Griffin. We've got Bermuda grass lawns. We have centipede grass lawns. We have St. Augustine grass lawns. Uh, we have zoysia grass lawns. Um, so all of those grasses can work, and each environment kind of will help dictate what, uh, what grass is best adapted. The more sunlight you have, butter, Bermuda grass is probably a better option, or even zoysia grass. But if, like many landscapes, you've got a little bit of um, some, some shade or some dappled shade um, in there, then zoysia grass is, is really taking over in a lot of areas and displacing some of our other species out there. Well, our original, our first caller is back on the line with us, uh, Dr. Waltz. Uh, he's got this species of grass in his front yard. Okay. Go ahead, caller. You're with us. Yes, sir. Fescue. You have tall fescue. Yes, sir. Okay. Well, <laughs> that makes things a little more, uh, I would say, difficult, but uh, we're trying to control weeds, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, do we know what kind of weeds we have? No, sir. No? Okay. Well, um, that, that's the, the perfect exact time to go to your county extension agent. Abs okay. Absolutely. And for those who don't know, the county extension office is located right here on Memorial Drive. It's the same complex as the Spalding County Senior Center and the voter registration office. Matter of fact, it's in the same strip as the voter registration office. But okay. but you also had a question about fertile fertility and fertilizing. Uh, so tall fescue, it's a cool season species. So it's going to do its best growing in the fall, winter, and spring of the year. So as we're moving into now late spring and early summer, it's, the environmental conditions are going to slow tall fescue's growth on its own. So even if you didn't fertilize, that grass is going to slow, it's going to thin out, it's going to open up. And every year, tall fescue will go into what I call the summer swoon, generally somewhere about 1st first of july or so and then it will look bad july august and, and first part of september until those night temperatures are consistently down in the low 60s for for tall fescue if you have not fertilized your tall fescue yet this year no. i would advise you to go ahead and fertilize it now um but then the next time you would fertilize it would probably somewhere after september 15th okay. but but go ahead and feed it now with a with something other, like a complete fertilizer use something other that's I like the analysis of a 1648, but it's hard to find that analysis at your big box retailer. So if you find something close, it's kind of maybe a a 20 dash 
let's just say 20-6 or 20-8-10 or something like that. You know, that that may be close. You know, so find something close. Go ahead and fertilize uh, your tall fescue now and uh, bring your mowing height up. Uh, Tall fescue should be mowed at about three inches. Uh, and uh, bring that mowing height up, and um, and, um, and and try to limp it through through the summertime, and, and knowing that it's not going to look a whole lot better until you so, uh, nighttime temperatures are, are below sixty degree or sixty five degrees, um, sometime next September October. Okay. All right, well, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. We pleasure. appreciate the call. Yes. Bye bye. But uh, calls prohibitive. If you if somebody has looked out and decided that they do want to resod and try mm-hmm. something different for a beautification project, how cost prohibitive is resodding? I mean, can it be done on a budget, or is this something that you just have to understand is going to be an expense? It's going to be an expense. Um, uh, so, it, and it's and it's an initial expense. Um, it can be. You know, there, there's there's creative ways of doing some things. Um, I looked at a lawn here recently that uh, they kind of had a left and a right of a driveway. And on the left-hand side, they had some grass, and we could talk about some management practices on it to mind up maybe improving what they had and getting even better uh, cover and, and uh, on it. The right-hand side of the driveway was fairly well lost, and it was really one that uh, probably should be reestablished if you want to have something other done there. And it's going to be a couple of several thousand dollars because it was a decent-sized lawn. So... It won't look, the entire front lawn won't look even because you have two different grasses. But if you had to do that on a budget, you kind of make a decision here or there. The other is, is you might bring in your bed lines a little bit. So your shaded areas, you bring those out and you, so you reduce your square footage that you're actually sodding. Now our sod producers would rather me say, you know, take it right up to the edge because they want to sell as much grass as they can. But if you're looking for economical ways of, of, of doing some renovation, but being able to get that green effect and then the positive effects of turf in your lawn. Um, there's ways of being creative with it and working with a landscaper that, that can help you with, with doing some of those things. Well, knowing you were coming, I was negligent in doing this piece of research, but I have my own grass question for you. I have, and I wish that I did not, and I should just pull it up and do something different, but I have along my walkways this what I have always termed as monkey grass. Mm-hmm. I am having a terrible problem with weeds this year. Unlike any of the 25 years that I've lived in this residence, this year more than any. Is there any reason for that? Has it been because of all the rain? And, and as you mentioned, the chickweed. And, and I mean, that's what, when you started describing chickweed, that's what it sounds like. Okay. Um, and yeah, as you said, that will die off. It will But die I off. mean, there are other weeds, what I've always called forget-me-nots. These little stringy vines have been mm-hmm. coming through too through the monkey grass is there anything i can do short of just pulling it up because i mean i'm sick of looking at it right. but I'll, I'll i know what my limitations are um and you would need to talk with dr mark zernata our ornamental specialist as far as it goes with herbicide recommendations or weed control recommendations for something like liriope or monkey grass or mondo grass um, those aren't actually grasses they're in the lily family if i remember correctly is i believe it's lily family um I don't think but they're not. I'm but, sure the but, UTA um, site will have publications that I can again, resort to. We, we do have we do have a resource here in, in Griffin and in, in Dr. Zernata um, uh, on it. So Mark would be the one I would kind of go back to. And yes, we do. We have some publications, and, and Mark's the one that's provided all the information for for those publications and, and pest control. Now you do ask a very good question of what kind of why are we seeing 
and I hear this every spring, oh, there's more weeds this year than we've ever had before. And I'm not so sure that's just not a matter of, um, you know, we're, we, here, here and present kind of thing. We're, yeah, we're given but, to but we have had a we have had a relatively warm uh, winter. We've had a relatively wet winter. Uh, both of those certainly match up for uh, weed germination, weed survival, and um, and and pl- proliferation out there. So um, it it could be a very weedy weedy season this year. Or has been a, a very weedy season. Uh, whether it's been poa, and, and again, I'll step back and say that some of our, our annual bluegrass or poa, for example, poa annua is, is, is that one's way it's referred to. It's a winter annual grassy weed, um, but it should be a little bit further down the road of, of being dead than it is right now. As, as cool as we've been several times in April and then now here in May, that grass is, or that weed has gotten several leases on life, and the environmental conditions have, have been favorable for it to, to continue to survive and hang on. Um, as well as, if you were smart and or, or on a lawn care program, and your landscaper came out and, and had your pre-emergence program put in last uh, fall and winter, and you're seeing weed breaks and that kind of thing, and, and they're out there right now, and I've I've have addressed some of these as well. Um, all the rain we've had. Uh, while many of these herbicides don't leach, they can certainly wind up kind of being, for lack of better terms, diluted. So we will see a loss of weed control um, under heavy rainfall kind of situations. So the amount of rain that we had in December, January, February, and March of this year uh, certainly could contribute to some of that too. And a reason you're seeing some breaks um, in, in weed control programs this late in the season. Which is worse on grasses? Too much, too little rain, precipitation in general, <laughs> or a variation in temperatures. Okay. Oh boy. Um, which is worse? Um, I mean, when, when, it, when, it, when it comes to rain, it, it, that one's a very timely thing. Um, timely rains are always beneficial, uh, but you could also have rains when they come at the wrong time and and be deleterious. So rainfall can wind up being one of those things. Um, and I'll take centipede grass, for example. Centipede grass is one that it will bounce back from a periodic drought real quick. You know, you can, if you've got a centipede grass lawn and you don't irrigate it for 7, 10, 14 days and we kind of go under a, a periodic drought, centipede grass will go off color. It'll look bad, but we get that afternoon thundershower that gives us three-quarters of an inch of rain in 20 minutes kind of thing. The next day, the next three, four days, centipede grass bounces back and looks fantastic. You know, so that that can happen with centipede. Where centipede falls down, for example, is whenever it has moving water across it. Centipede does not like water moving across it, and it will die out on that. So if you've got a slope enough lawn, centipede grass with a lot of rain, kind of like what we had this winter, and you just have a lot of moving water, and I've seen that a number of times across the state already this spring, that uh, centipede grass lawns are having problems, and a lot of that's associated back with the amount of water and just the sheer volume that we've had moving across it. Um, on it. Now, the fluctuating temperatures, that was the second part, right? Right. Um, that will slow things up typically, um, but it, it it's won't not necessarily kill anything. That's correct. That's that's not quite as so. It, what that one works back to is the individual homeowner patience. Uh, when things start to green up in April um, and, and things kind of get going, and you get those what I refer to as chamber of commerce days where it's about 80 degrees and the humidity is about 30%, and there's a crystal clear sky and a little five mile an hour breeze, and it feels good, and the grass starts to green up a little bit. Um, it, it responds and does well, and then the next thing you know, here we are down in the 30s again in April. Um, the grass will respond to that as well. So, those fluctuating temperatures can have an impact, but generally, whenever it warms up, our warm season grasses um, rebound nicely. 
and and will come on. So it's just a matter of whether they're they're greening up in um, um, April, May, or whether they're greening up May, Juneish, uh, is what the, the environmental conditions are. And this year is looking like it's shaping up into a little bit more like 2018, where we had a really long, cool spring. Um, and grasses were sitting on go. They were ready to go until the soil temperatures and, and air temperatures really got up high enough. And um, and in June was whenever they really kind of, uh, lack of better terms, uh, erupted and got going. Sorry about that, Dr. Waltz. I'm, I'm having to play producer and host this morning. Uh, <laughs> That's that fine, That was David. one of our previous callers who you, told, you had advised her to cut the, the, her yard at two. Mm. And she was mentioning... It, she's using fertilizer with no weed killer. Do you suggest that she take care of her weed problem before fertilizing? No. Uh, I think she should go ahead and fertilize her zoysia centipede stand uh, on it. So go ahead and fertilize that. And, and if she's looking at chickweed, as I said, as a winter annual, um, it's going to die on its own. So there's no need in putting a herbicide out for to control that weed when we can do it fairly effectively with the mower and changing environmental conditions. So spending extra money for a herbicide on that one right now is, is I'd rather see her spend the money on the fertilizer and, and doing the other things than, than that. I don't think she's going to get as much bang for her buck. Well, getting back to the rainfall total, what we had all this rain in the first three months of the year. How long will a grass's root system be able to maintain that water? Oh, the, the system doesn't root system doesn't maintain that water, but um, the, the soil holds that water. But um, what we're seeing right now, we've, we've and it won't take too much longer. We haven't had a good rain here in Griffin in probably about two weeks or better. Right, it, it, things are starting to dry down and dry out a little bit, and the humidities have been down the last few days. So we need a, a little periodic rain right now. Um, um, rainfall right now, in the total of, total rainfall in the month of of uh, May in in Griffin is zero. Um, last year, I was looking at some of these data this morning. Last year, we had 1.77 inches in the entire month of, of May. So um, a timely rain would be beneficial. But many of our grasses right now are still pulling soil moisture from, from reserves that came in this past winter. But uh, uh, I, I am a bit concerned that if we don't get a timely rain in the next, uh, I'm just going to say, three to five days, we're going to start seeing some decline in lawns, non-irrigated lawns out there. So um, it, it'd be nice if, if somebody could, you know, yeah, I'm looking at the the website now, that, yeah. uh, the one that you suggested. We ha- I have saved it in our favorite, so I can easily access it. I've got a question for you, and I asked this to someone earlier, and I promised myself I would remember the answer, and I didn't. <laughs> Where is the Dempsey Farm? It, I am told it's somewhere near Williamson. Yes, yes, it's it's out there. Um, if if you go out um, uh, Williamson Road, and uh, so you're going to go through um, Williamson. And you're going to go, I don't know, it's maybe another four miles or so. And it's off of Williamson Road back to the right um, out, out there. Now, May is one of the typical drier months for our area. I mean, generally, on average, uh, the climate survey says we get 3.82 inches of rain in May. we got a long way to go. Well, yeah, and, and as you say, through the first uh, four, 13 days of the month, because this weather site, weather station doesn't update until midnight. Correct. So, But we're not going to have any rain likely today either, so we're going to be stuck on zero. But that's not atypical. Just two years ago, we had four one-hundredths of an inch at this time. Yeah. So at what point is, is it problematic that it has been so long? I mean, is it almost more harm than good to get a real 
tough, hard downpour for that 20, 30-minute thunder shower. And yeah. it would be much preferred to just have it spread out over the course of a little bit each day. Yeah, that'd be much better because there it kind of soaks in and moves deeper into the soil profile. So, um, you know, it, it's like trying to drink from a fire hydrant sometimes. So if we wind up getting That's that— That's a good analogy. Um, if, if we get that inch, inch and a half rain and—, and you know, even if it's over the course of a four or five hour period, we're going to get some soil penetration, but there's still an awful lot that's going to not work its way into the root system. And, and that's where the water is going to have to come from. So those longer soaking rains certainly wet up to a much greater depth. And then if you've done things right, you can pull and, you, and you've got a strong root system. So your fertility's running been right. Your mowing height's been right. You're taking care of your grass like it needs to. You've got a good deep root system. You're pulling water from greater depths or greater soil volumes. That's, well, to that end, do you think it's fair to say now, and I had never really considered this, but do you think it's fair to say that sometimes rainfall totals, when you start looking at monthly and annual, can be sometimes a little bit overrated? It's more important, you know, a hard rain produces as much runoff as it does good. So, I mean, is that the case of, of you know, sometimes these rainfall totals can be overrated? Very much so. Absolutely. And um, that's one of the things in agriculture we're always looking at or talking about is, is what the effect of rain is and then how efficient the plant is at acquiring what water does make it into the root system. So one of our objectives of our breeding program at the University of Georgia has been improving water use efficiency by the plant. So whether the plant uh, re- reacts by growing deeper roots or whether it reacts some other way physiologically to, to do a better job of extracting moisture from uh, the soil um, and as a result provides what moisture it needs or even point where the plant doesn't need as much moisture to maintain biological activity and maintain quality and color uh, for us. So those are some active parts of our breeding programs to improve our grasses, increase the technology such that the overall inputs of our grasses are are, are reduced and, and not quite as needed as well either. So with the research, we're not necessarily dealing with our fathers and grandfathers' grasses. Well, <laughs> I mean, we are. But we then- are. Um, the, the most popular Bermuda grass that's that's ever been out there was Tifway 419 Bermuda grass, and it's used all over the state, all over the world, um, actually. And it came out of the Tifton program down, and it was released in 1960. So, yeah, that's very much our grandfather's grass, and it's still an excellent grass. It's still got good water use efficiency to it. Um, so we're still using it, but... Uh, about five years ago, we came out with Tiff Tough Bermuda grass, which actually has improved water use efficiency, and it's the oh. s- strongest rhizome producer I've ever seen on a Bermuda grass. So, it produces strong rhizomes that can recover from stress much faster, um, and its growth rate is really good. So, we've improved the technology. So, we've got new technology out there that that uses water resources more efficiently, and we don't have to put as much back into it um, with it. What is the most common mistake homeowners make with their lawn? <laughs> Um, I'll make it two. Uh, there's two of them. Number one would be species selection, putting the wrong plant in the right place, a wrong place. Yeah. So if, if we can do a good job with selecting the right species and putting it in the right place, that's, that's critical. Number two is site preparation. That's, that's the other thing I see that is most common to problem. If, if, if the lawns, when new lawns are established, you don't take the time and effort to come back in, till the soil, amend the soil before you ever put the grass back on it. So if you do a good job on the front end with, um, with site preparation and you select the right grass, uh, it's, it's pretty, I'm pretty confident in saying you've got about 80% of the problem licked. Uh, but it's, it, those are the two big issues. Well, Dr. Walsh, we've got time for one final caller here this morning on the UGA Griffin Campus News. You're on the air with us, caller. Go ahead with your question for Dr. Walsh. Yes, it could have already been repeated, but I just turned it on, so I missed a lot of it. Uh, I was going to ask him, uh, is it too late to uh, 
trying to get rid of my dandelions, uh, and what do you use that's safe? Uh, like for, uh, I have an animal next door that comes to, to the yard, and I just didn't want to put anything out right. that would uh, hurt the cat. But um, it's, um, uh, is it too late to put um, something out to no, kill the weed killer? It's, it's kill not. Um, dandelions. For, for dandelions, again, you want to go back to something that contains 2,4-D in it. Um, generally, there's three herbicides in there, and 2,4-D is the, the big one in there um, on it. And, and that Wait, can be... I mean, I can't hear. No, you're going to have to turn your radio down, ma'am. I, I tell you what, so we'll have... You just listen to your radio, and we'll have Dr. Waltz answer the question. And okay. th- thank you very much for the call. Okay, thank you. So, so you're looking for a product that, that contains 2,4-D. Um, and, and it, and as I said, it's going to have probably two other herbicides in it as well. But you can find that in a formulation as a hose-in sprayer, or you sometimes you can find those on a on a on a granular carrier that you put it out. Um, and those can be quite effective with with um, dandelion uh, coverage. Is obviously going to be the pro uh, is going to be you, you're going to get better better kill with with uh, proper coverage. And all of our pesticides have to go through a very rigorous testing progress process with um, with EPA. Uh, so as far as it goes with safety, uh, most of our pesticides, when used according to the label on the bag or, or the bottle, are, are safe to, for people and, and pets. Now, obviously, you don't want to do silly things, and, uh, but uh, there's other things that you can do, too, from a best management practice standpoint to, to make sure that uh, you reduce exposure as much as you can. Uh, if there's any way of asking your neighbor maybe to hold on to your cat, her cat, for 12 or 24 hours or, or whatever um, shouldn't be a problem. But many times pets pets aren't interested in licking or eating these kinds of things. It's, it doesn't smell good to them either. It's just kind of like it sometimes doesn't smell good to us. Well, Dr. Clint Walsh, we want to thank you very much for joining us this week on the University of Georgia Griffin Campus News and especially for having the courage to take phone calls. You, <laughs> you answered questions really masterfully. We'll have to do this again. I didn't know it was going to be quite so seamless. I'll get the hybrid down just a little bit better to make it a more seamless transition. But uh, I'd love to have you back at your earliest convenience and uh, maybe when the fall rolls around and there's fall grasses to be contended with and sure. weeds and things like that, maybe we'll get a chance to discuss. But again, thank you very much for joining us this morning. And we thank you, listeners and callers for your participation in this morning's program. We hope that you'll join us again next Thursday morning for the next installment of the University of Georgia Griffin Campus News. Thanks for joining us for today's program of UGA Griffin Campus News. Listen each Thursday morning at 9 for UGA Griffin Campus News on WKU AM 1450, 102.3 FM, and The Rock 88.9 FM, and streamed live on the WKURadio.com website. Today's program was made possible by Frank and Carolyn Harris of Round Oak Resources Tree Farm and Murray & Company Realtors. <laughs>